0: I often now say learning is our superpower. How do you continually evolve? How do you let go, allow part of you to die so that something else can be born? When we think about what's true across the course of our lives, it's who we are. What we know needs to change. And even our skill sets need to adapt. So if we're too attached to our knowledge set, that's going to place us in a rigid position. That if any organization doesn't consider themselves a learning organization, they're already a few decades behind. I'm obsessed by the idea of humanizing our social systems. How do you do that? Because that's what a great culture is. You step in and you feel seen, heard, and valued, and you're more able to do extraordinary work to your best capacity every single day. And that's that's what the work is, right? And there's the power that comes from doing less, right? I think good strategy, when I step into that strategic space, it's actually about subtraction. It's about what not to do as well as what to do for the intentional action.
1: Hey there, my name is Daniel Franco and this is the Creating Synergy podcast, your business and leadership podcast where we speak to high-profile leaders and thinkers about their careers and dig deep by asking the questions we all want the answers to, uncovering their stories, strategies, leadership lessons and their secrets to success. And today on the show, we have Luca Parry, CEO and founder of The Learning Future. Luca is a renowned expert in the field of education and has dedicated his career into improving the way we learn and grow. Looker opens the show with Acknowledgement of Country in the Pitjantjatjara language, a language that he learned after spending many years in Central Australia. Looker is a former teacher who became a school principal at just the age of 27 years old and worked globally to support thousands of educators and leaders to increase their positive impact. He speaks five languages and has visited over 80 countries and brings a wealth of experience and knowledge to this conversation. He also has an amazing TED talk titled, Words Can Change the World, How Language Deepens Connection, which has had over 33,000 views. In this episode, Luca and I discuss the powerful role of language in shaping and deepening our connections with others and the transformative impact that learning a new language can have on an individual and how it can help us to better understand and connect with people from different cultures and backgrounds. We also discussed the concept and the importance of being a global citizen and what great communication does in building bridges and creating more connected and compassionate community. Lastly, Luca also shared his thoughts on the current education system and why we need to move away from a standardized model to a more personalized model to better serve the needs of the learners and create a more inclusive and effective learning experience for all. So without further ado, please enjoy my chat with Luca Parry. Welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. Well, today on the show, I've been really looking forward to this, and we're going to start off a little bit different. We've got Luca Parry on the show. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
1: I'm a big fan of your TEDx talk. It's got a lot of followers, so kudos Thanks. anyone Thanks. that wants to check it <laughs> few, out. A few go, years go, ago get, now, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's fun. It's just, I think it's just hits the mark on so many different things, so go check that out, and we'll talk about a lot of those topics today. Okay. But in that, you started off um, talking, now you talk five different languages, don't you? Well, thereabouts. One of them being um, you can speak in Aboriginal language because mm-hmm. you spent some time in uh, Central Australia. Can you do an acknowledgement of the country for us?
0: Oh, wow. Well, I can well, I can acknowledge, you know, I mean, we're in Ghana, Yata, yeah, right? Correct. So, you know… Um, and I should have prepped a Ghana welcome because I'm mean, actually, I'd love to learn Ghana. This is okay, where okay, you up.
1: Okay, so there's different. Okay,
0: so no, is so cool. yeah, so, you know, Ghana da Ghana me dumpin thi. I want to pay my respects to the Ghana, yeah. you know, custodians of the land that we meet on here today. But I spent a long time in the Anangu, Pijinjara, Yanguinjara lands. And okay. so the languages that I'm, I've been really, I think, privileged to be taught by Anangu and by elders and by educators uh, is Pijinjara and okay. the minority dialect, Yanguinjara. So,
1: so, whereabouts in Central Australia?
0: In the northwest corner of South Australia, on the okay. border of the Northern Territory Western Australia. Mono ala gengai lo wangkanyi Mono gai gai chana nintini ne Mono nailu lo warakori ni mula ba palo gai lo pukol pa wangkachana pa mono so, you know, that's ex- that's some ex- of the pigeon Explain language. Explain that to me. I oh, was just say? saying, you know, I, was, I feel very lucky to have been taught this language yeah, and could. this is what it sounds like. Um, I spent five years in that part of South Australia. It's where I went out as a brand new, you know, squeaky clean teacher mm-hmm. Um, in my first kind of full-time teaching role and it was a, it had a profound impact not just on my linguistic interests but but also on how I conceive of learning systems, how Mm. I conceive of well-being, how I conceive of leadership and strategy, and even more profound concepts around what does it mean to be human, what what matters most, what's success, what can we learn from the oldest continuing culture in the world, Uh, what kind of systems can we understand around literally living in a sustainable, regenerative way. And I think these are many principles that our Cartesian-Newtonian kind of current market economy is kind of forgotten about. Mm. And so we're having we're seeing, I think, the evolution of the business world appropriately. Um, but again, if we return to the holistic indigenous worldviews, there's quite a lot of wisdom there, I think, mm. that we can pay attention to. And I've been doing my best as a non-Aboriginal person, as a Greek-Welsh hybrid, as I like <laughs> to reflect, right? Um, you know, to do my part as an Australian and to realize, actually, it's an incredible strength that we have here. Mm. And there's still more reckoning and reconciliation and recognition to come. But you know if we get this right we can become such a beautiful multicultural dynamic holistic nation um and that can go from the local all the way up to the national level
1: i love it you, you talked about learnings from the elders and from the history and you said if we can learn that what it, what are the, what are what's that what is that what are you talking about when you say we can learn some of their their customs and their you know their learnings and experiences over time
0: well i would point to some of the indigenous theorists, educators, Mm -hmm. um, wisdom holders in this space. You know, I was lucky to learn directly from elders in the community where I was working as an educator and then subsequently the school leader for a time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are some wonderful people talking about this. Tristan Yonka Porter wrote a great book called Sand Talk, Why Indigenous Thinking Can Change the World, Mm -hmm. maybe Save the World might even be the subtitle, to be honest with you. And then there's, you know, phenomenal colleagues that we can, we can see and learn from. Stan Grant, I think, puts forward such a powerful vision yeah. of what Australia could be mm. if we have the courage to kind of look at where we are and what's actually happened in terms of where we've come from. And so this idea of like remembering the parts of who we are to come up with a kind of more human-centered model mm-hmm. is at the core of my work. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's the core of your work. You know, the idea of synergizing, Like, how do you bring together all these different aspects, the IQ, the EQ, the AQ, all those different knowledge sets, all those different skill sets and really critically, the different identities that we also hold, the intersectionality. Because it's, you know, it's who we are, what we can do and what we know in that order of importance, I would suggest. Mm. And the challenge, of course, in, in my work is that both in the workplace, in terms of organizational culture, and also in terms of the way we've designed, and I say we, you know, the way schooling systems were designed some 150 years ago, is that we've Placed all the attention on this obsession around the cognitive. What you know? What do you know? Tell me the question. But really, it's actually there are better questions that I think a lot of wonderful schools already are operating on. It's not just invention and innovation. It's actually remembering in my view. And that's both in the metaphorical and the literal sense. How do you bring – how do you remember things, right? So what's the point of being super successful? And we can have this conversation around success, right? Yeah. Super successful and you look at a billionaire and they're on their fourth marriage – they're estranged from their children. They're on a whole bunch of, uh, you know, antidepressant medication. You know, that's not success. It no. has one narrow metric. And so, how do we expand that? How socially connected do you feel? Can you emotionally regulate? Do you feel called to a purpose higher than the one that you might think as an individual? You know, the transcendent piece, and that that can resonate for anyone that has a faith-based tradition. But even if you don't, as an agnostic or atheist, like where do you derive your purpose? What's your life for? Like all these questions, mm. right? is what we grappled with as a team of educators working in that particular place. And so that was my entry into the workforce. Yeah, wow. And so it was quite different from the joke I say, Daniel. It's like the I almost took a job 15 minutes down the road from where I grew up in yeah. southern Adelaide in Westbourne Park, right, yeah, represent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I took one 15 hours down the road, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's two, two turns, mate, two turns. You get to Port Augusta, turn right. Yep. And then you go past a mile and you turn left. Yeah. And that's kind of what's yeah, the journey wow. of a 15 hour. but so for me, a, a really transformative, particularly as a as a white man, I understood for the first time the concept of whiteness, yeah. you know, which again for so many of us,
1: um, we don't understand that actually we have so identity I'm, as well. So I've heard you say this. I want to hear you talk about the concept of whiteness because you're you were you know fish out of water in a in a different world, in that you you were almost you were part of the minority when you mm-hmm. go into Central Australia. What did what did you? feel in that space what are you i mean what does the concept of whiteness mean to you and what you learn in that time
0: well it's it's such a great question i would say i, I want to respond with my favorite quote one of my favorite quotes right yeah. i'm a real quote kind of guy yeah. i think you'll be perfect yeah. <laughs> yeah i know it's gonna be there's a lot coming i apologize <laughs> uh but it's, it's like Jung, right? Yeah. and he says until you make the unconscious conscious it will direct your life and you will call it fate Mm. And this is the whole piece. It's like, what is, what's the unknown unknowns in our lives? What are our blind spots? What don't we realize? And I think I grew up, you know, a middle class family, psychiatrist, father, educator mother, mm. um, both born overseas. Uh, first in my family, we were born in Australia. So I had this real sense around my connection to Australia. But I remember traveling around the world as an 18-year-old. I lived in Dublin. That was a real rite of passage for me as yeah. a young man playing Gaelic football, um, and then, yeah, backpacking across the continent. I'm saying, I'm an Aussie, I'm an Aussie. And I realised at that point that I hadn't, I hadn't really had an education around the First Nations history, like the true history of Australia, the broad history of Australia that has multiple perspectives, many of which are still being played out, you know, in, in public discourse <laughs> yeah. now, right, in the media yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and in universities and, and beyond. So there's something incredibly powerful, I think, when we remove ourselves from a situation where we are perhaps part of a dominant culture. Or well, we are certainly part of a dominant race, um, or religion, or creed, and we put ourselves into a space where, oh wow, actually, I'm different. Mm. I stand out. That's mm-hmm. such a powerful experience for for me as a young man. That you know, I'm Greek and Welsh, right? But yeah. I, you know, I've curly hair. that's, yeah. part of the, yeah, that's yeah, the piece there. That's right. But um, so realizing I'm the only white guy on the football team, for yeah, example, that, and that the...
1: photo of, of you and the football team. Is oh
0: far. mate, well, it's really <laughs> profound for me because yeah. I'm like. All of a sudden, the whole opposition team, you know, in particular, you know, they're always a formidable opposition, <laughs> yeah. you know, but when we're playing for Mimli Blues, I, you know, I'm being targeted because I stand out. Mm. And so it's like, get the white guy. Yeah, And that, that's like a, just a glimpse for me um, as someone that comes from a, a privileged background in many respects in terms of intersectionality to go, oh, wow, this is a glimpse into what it might feel like to be a minority in another space. And so having that experience Transformed, I think, my ability to take perspective, to be empathetic. Um, and also my own worldviews, like realizing that I went in and was like, oh, this is what it is. No, it's not. That's just, that's the construct that you're operating with. That's just the culture scape. And so, in my own kind of, I would say, consciousness development, to be honest, or Robert Keegan's models out of Harvard, the adult development, like, how do we be deliberately developmental? I'm thinking, oh, wow, okay. So, I thought that this was the way it was or it is. But actually, that's just because I'm, my vantage point is here. Mm. So one, anyway, one other way that I'll put this is I used to say I'm going to – I work in the middle of nowhere. I'm so, and then and, yeah. and all the time, it's out, the ba- it's out in the outback. Yeah, yeah. It's in the outback. It's like you know, 15 hours down. The- that's such a metrocentric perspective. Yeah, of course it is. And so yeah. for, for people that have had thousands of generations of continuous cultivation and, uh, of the land there, connection to country, uh, that's the middle of everything.
1: Mm.
0: And so I'm going, it's the Center middle of, of, middle of yeah, everything. You know, oh, of course it is. And mm. so, again, I, I was so challenged, not just in trying to be, be a good educator and inspire young people and, you know, interact with the community and yeah. learn the local languages. But that, that is my best answer to your, your question around whiteness. It's like any other aspect. Are you conscious of that? Are you conscious of who you are fully, all the different aspects that make you who you are? Because when you are, the more conscious you are, in my view, the more able you are to act deliberately in ways that uplift, that humanise. Mm. You don't need to project your blind spots onto others. And that, I think, makes a great leader, makes a great CEO, mm. makes a great school principal, by the way, as well, like yeah. I hope. And, I'm, you know, that was a really big couple of years of my life as well, stepping into that role quite young. So, yeah, I think it's the journey for all of us. right?
1: So you're the minority when you're in 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 Central Australia, what's the what's the suburb? Is it like? Is oh, it's called Mimmily. Okay, so yeah, it's a community.
0: Yeah, community. One of Mimili. nine across the the Anangu, yeah, lands. Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: yeah. And like we, we're skipping a few years, right? But I want to get the learning here, and spe- specifically of the whiteness piece, and and okay. those learnings that you that you took away. Mm. You come back to metropolitan Adelaide or South Australia, mm-hmm. and and do you do you behave differently? Do you have a different vantage point looking now? Do you walk down the street holding yourself differently? Is there anything that you took coming back or that you kept when you came back that you then – you acted in a different way? did you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah, you? yeah, of course.
0: I, mean, I can talk to the changes I feel i yeah, I've undergone, but I can't run the A-B experiment. Yeah, course, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. Because – Yeah, no, that's no. right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say I'm just, I was so much more open-minded. Mm. I actually—I I would say even I'd become humbled mm. a little by my experiences there, yeah. not least of all in terms of like how hard life can be for some people mm-hmm. and how intergenerational trauma can manifest mm. and what the responsibility of an organization or an institution like a school might be, you know, because at its best, a school in any community in the world is representative of Of the best parts of that community, the the collective dream, the collective vision. Mm. And it's worse, it's just perpetrating the same kind of outdated systems and models and structures and power dynamics that mean a lot of young people leave school saying, I don't I didn't like school. In fact, Mm -hmm. I don't like parts of myself and I know what I'm not good at. I mean, you know, I mean that's and that's I think the legacy model that we've inherited. And so that's our responsibility to do something about that. And there's some incredible work happening nationally and internationally to do that. So I guess that's the first thing I'm more open-minded uh, in terms of taking perspective. I think languages as well for anyone that speaks multiple languages. And I learned all of mine as an adult, by the way, mm. I was monolingual at 18 and it took for me, you know, for a couple of moments overseas in Europe where you've got people speaking four languages, you know, code switching seamlessly. And Yeah. You know, probably should have made paid more attention to this, yeah. you know, to be, you know, global citizenship really is a key focus of education systems. And frankly, nation states as well it has to be how do we interact in this globally connected world that's increasingly connected uh so i think that piece is what comes to me you know open-mindedness ability to take perspective but also to kind of know who i am i mean in in linguistics we talk call this contrast and compare in language acquisition so you know when you when you have your own language what you do is you take a second language and you're contrasting and comparing against the linguistic data that you already have Mm. um and that's been how I've learned so many subsequent languages. You always kind of – I learn more about English by learning Spanish and modern Greek, for example. Well,
1: you know what I mean? I mean this is, the, this is going to be one of the questions that I have. I mean I, I, I can't even speak English properly, right? Like if you think about um, the – the slang that I would use and the, the, the lack of vocabulary that I might have. Uh, I, you know, I, I work really hard on my vocabulary, but I'm still nowhere near where I need to be and not to the level that you are. Why am I concentrating on other languages when I can't even get the one I'm speaking right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, I, because it's a false dichotomy. Okay.
0: By learning another language, your own grasp of your own language will increase, mm. will improve because you understand why concepts are the way they are, why noun phrases, why structures occur in a particular way. Prepositions in English are postpositions yeah. in other languages. And so all of a sudden you start to pay more attention to at, to, with, by, from, because it determines the relationships between ideas. And so you start to realize, yeah. I mean, I and to be honest, Daniel, why, why I think I care about this, If I go and I've done all this in a work, to be honest yeah. with you, why I care about this so much, I feel, is for two reasons. Number one, when I was a young child, when I was a young boy in primary school, I was terrible at English. I remember, I think I missed out on getting my pen license. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and for me, you're like, oh, so, well, it doesn't matter. But, you know, for a small kid, that's oh, really significant. But now I got my pen license. I know. Well, yeah. I'm like, okay, didn't even get my, I can't remember. So, and I had a lisp as well. Yeah. So I went to a speech path as well yeah. as, a, as a young kid. And um, I remember practicing seven slippery snakes slither slowly southwards. You know, like yeah. over and over again, as just part of my memory. So I had this idea that I wasn't good at language, mm. and then also when my when I was sixteen, my papou, my Greek grandfather, died, of A heart attack suddenly, and I I realized because he had emigrated here, I think in his forties, um, and so his English wasn't great, and I was my Greek was non-existent mm. outside of being able to pronounce Luca, even though I, I was probably not even pronouncing that correctly back in the day. Oh, yeah. You know. Um so those two things happened and I think subsequently I've kind of over, maybe over-indexed towards yeah. language. Like yeah, I've yeah. done a Master's in Applied Linguistics. I'm just obsessed about learning new linguistic data because for me languages are an incredible way to take perspective, to empathize, to step into the shoes of another human being and, and see from their vantage point. Um, it's the primary technology that we use to, to get ideas across, yeah. to even understand our world. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of why I'm so passionate.
1: Just a quick note, this episode is brought to you by Synergy IQ, leaders in enabling change. Synergy IQ are the ones you call when the change or challenge seems so complex and you don't know where to start. But more importantly, we're the ones you call when you want to make a change that will actually last. If you want to check them out, it's at synergyiq.com.au. Oh, my God, I've got like 5,000 questions. The, um, (laughs) the, your bub pool. When he passed away, that was a profound moment and you've said that that's a turning point which is, you know, taking you down the the career path that you have. I think one of my... I'm not a person that lives in regret too much but one thing that I wish I had done was learn how to speak proper Italian. My family's Mm. Italian. They all immigrated here um, back in the 50s, 60s and I never... Got the opportunity to sit down and have an in-depth conversation with my grandparents, Mm. all four of them. No, 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 no. Yeah, Yeah. and um, I still to this day like sort of wish because I, you know, Synergy IQ, the work we do, we we work, you know, in complex change in that space, but it's really always focused on core human behaviour, right? And that's you know when we work in change, we our specialty is the human behavior aspect of mm-hmm. the change not the technology not anything else and so now i've become obsessed with human behavior and and so i always wish that i was able to create a different view of my grandparents based on who they were as individuals yeah. and their behaviors as opposed to what i saw on the surface level so i i really do understand like that turning point and mm. um, for me i was a bit i was a lot younger when my fir- my grandparents passed away so I didn't I missed out on that opportunity mm. but I really want to talk about I mean something you just said now as well was language is you know is from an ep- empathic point of view and you can really connect and, and learn from other people when you sa- when you talk about language you've I've, I'm quoting you've said language is our super it allows us to communicate and connect and that's some of the videos and, and YouTube stuff that you've got going on you've said that when you talk about language are you talking about all that's involved with language like behavior, tonality is that what you're referring to or just the language itself the words itself no I'm, I'm referring to what
0: under, underpins that mm. I would say I mean and, and to be honest I often now say learning is our superpower yeah because yeah. it's our because it's through learning and the curiosity of learning which is built into our neural architecture mm. it's like we are born to learn yeah we are born learners well i heard
1: yeah. this saying if you uh, what is a what is what happens to a tree when it stops growing it starts dying it starts dying right and like and so that's yeah i think it's 100% true learning and growth is is
0: core to what we do absolutely i mean it's, and i think what's really important is the the language that we use, right, to get a bit. So on the one hand, you know, we often conflate learning, education and schooling and learning to me is an intrinsic human trait.
1: Mm.
0: Like, And so the superpower is how do we tap into that deep curiosity that we all have as children that sadly for some of us becomes, you know, dampened or doused by the kind of rigid systems in which we operate, be they workplaces or be they school systems, right? So how do we kind of nurture and cultivate and almost protect that yeah. ability to learn? And then, of course, the modern world, and this is Alvin Toffler, you know, the illiterate of the 21st century aren't those that can't read and write. It's those that will uh, are unable to learn, unlearn and relearn. Mm. And I mean, I'll tell you what, being you know, working in language and <laughs> literacy, yeah, it helps if you can read and write. In fact, it's critical because mm. only then can you be truly autodidactic yeah. um, and become a f- full self-learner. But those are the floor, not the ceiling, as the saying goes. You know, so it's kind of the capabilities work is what I'm really interested in. How do you continually evolve? How do you let go, allow part of you to die so that something else can be born? Like that idea of reinvention, especially in the kind of future of work conversation that we're all having, you know, there's no longer a career ladder. I'm sure you can look at your career, I can look at mine. You can call it a career, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's now career web. And particularly if you're a zillennial, you know, coming out into the workforce, gen alphas, you know, when they finish school in whatever it is, nine or ten years' time, you know, they're, they're going to enter a very different place where actually their capacity to learn is the superpower. And of course, how do you learn what? Well, it's through communication, it's through understanding the relationships between concepts and constructs. And that's a, a language piece, in my view. Mm. If you can't communicate, you can't lead. Mm. <laughs> There's no doubt. About it. It's one of the key pillars yeah. for leadership. Do
1: you think, so going back when we st- early in this podcast. Yeah. Ten minutes ago, okay, you yes. said, is, "Is that all?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you said, um, "You said we, we can learn from the elders, past and present, right?" And we we'll learn from their way of living. And you said, "It's who we are, what we do, and what we know." Mm-hmm. Do you think if we approach everything, and then use you know, the word curiosity, and I, I believe. You know, a superpower of mine is the ability to be curious, unlearn and relearn sort of thing. I I absolutely love that. Yeah. Do you think that learning from who we are, is that the foundation that we should all start on first before we go to learn anything else? Does that give you a strong base? I mean because the schooling system right now goes straight to what we know in reception, year one, year two, early in those schooling careers, is it too early to learn about who we are? Like w- what does that look like for you?
0: I, I like – so I've, I've done a lot of work in de- design, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't mean graphic design. I mean kind of systems design or learning design yep, yep. and design thinking through Stanford mm-hmm. and a whole range of mm-hmm. other work. So I'm really interested in the questions we ask and what the starting point is. Mm. And you're quite right. The current kind of – I'm going to say legacy schooling systems, right? Because we've inherited them, like we actually didn't design them. Yeah, they've we've kind of it's off the Henry been given to us Oh, it? absolutely, yeah. oh, Henry Ford. I mean, yeah, the yeah. Committee of Ten. There's yeah. a whole yeah. whole bunch of how it's been standardized, and you know, it was standardized to be to reculture an entire generation for the Industrial Revolution, like mm. the Second Industrial Revolution, and and now of course it's no longer fit for, for purpose. It's kind of palliative in some ways, mm. um, and so what we're seeing is the emergence of new systems, new practices. Um, that are really kind of being born as part of that change. Um, so that, that piece on, on identity is something that is kind of, when we think about what's true across the course of our lives, it's who we are, mm-hmm. what we know needs to change, and even our skill sets need to adapt. So if we're too attached to our knowledge set, that's going to place us in a rigid position. Uh, people talk about the knowledge economy. I don't think we're in the knowledge economy at all anymore. I think we're in a creation economy. It's actually what you do with what you know. Mm. If you, you know, Tony Wagner's work out of Harvard, right? It's not what you know, it's what you do with what you know. And I just add another layer to that. I say, yes, it's what you know and it's what you do with what you know, but actually it's who you are as you do things with what you know. Mm. And that deeper level is, of course, the most important level. It's how do I feel about myself? This is why I'm such a proponent for social and emotional skills, Mm. or sometimes called problematically soft skills, right? They're human skills. It's actually how do I communicate? How do I have a relationship with myself, with others? How do I make ethical decisions? I mean, though that kind of, that's the foundation upon which our skillset, what technical skill? Yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll take a LinkedIn course, I'll do a micro credential, I'll go through edX or whatever, go to Harvard, you know, do a micro course, a yeah. fellowship, or a macro degree if I need to, you know, yeah. um, although probably less, <laughs> increasingly less, because yeah. we're looking at the way the kind of the future of higher education is transforming. So that, that piece on who we are, I think, is the great question. And I think, Daniel, what we struggle to do is get beyond small talk. Mm. Right? We start with the polite and then we listen to respond. Mm. And there's some great work, particularly out of MIT, from Otto Sharma and Theory U, which you might know of, it's the four levels of listening. So, you know, is it just factual listening? It's like, oh, just, you know, or is it? Or do we want to go all the way to empathic listening or do we want to get to generative listening? Mm. Which is actually where we're holding space to allow the emergence of a new idea. A new process, a new product, a new service, a new possibility, and so often we're just like I'm. I'm waiting for you to finish, yeah. so I can speak. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because it's not listening anymore. Yeah. So
1: even all Simon Garfunkel said it in there. So right, there's a, there's a line in one of their sound songs. Sound of Silence. Yeah, the Sound of Silence. Right, <laughs> people speak. It's a good track. Yeah, oh, it's a river, yeah. but like it's yeah. something that I always think about, and it's yeah. people speaking, uh, people talking without speaking, and then it's people listening without hearing. Right, and that's the
0: that's um, well, you describing Twitter, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I Everybody yelling no that's no, correct, yeah. And so this is, again, I think just the modes of communication mm. in the modern world have become so much about broadcast and much less about the holding of space, which is mm. why, again, if we come back to let's think how, how we've done this in the past before we got so busy that we, you know, our calendars are like rocks, yeah. are, you know, completely solid. It's, yeah, just how do we sit in circle? How do we stand around a whiteboard and go, all right, what's yeah. possible here? Not not necessarily what's the problem, but what's the possibility? And this is some of Charlie Leadbeater's work. He's a phenomenal systems thinker and educator from whom I've learned a lot. It's, you know, it's like how do we move from problem to possibility? Mm. And as an aspiring education futurist in particular, I really like visiting the future, right? Return to the present and then powerfully develop intentional action, aka a strategy, to try to create your preferred future. Um, But to do that properly, we have to think possibility, not just problem and fix it. And I think this manifests across government, it manifests across big corporates, you know, because it's slower but more powerful to really listen well.
1: Start a podcast if you want to get better at <laughs> listening. I, I'm telling you right now, when I first, I think, I actually even remember, I'm a very self-reflective person. And I, 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 I can see that. I, I remember so vividly in my mind thinking, I need to get better at listening. I over speak, I cut people off, I, you know, and, and it's not because it's not because I was ever, I thought I was ever rude in the sense that I don't care about what you're saying, therefore, I'm not going to listen. It's the way my brain worked. I could figure out what you're saying, therefore, I'm, yeah, happy. Let's, let's now move on. Right. Mm. And I've reached like through the idea of the podcast, uh, it, you know, even, you know, you become a leader in a business and you. You have to become a better listener. You have to uh, otherwise, you know, the, the, the alternative is not, is not the right option. We, staff engagement or the above, right? Mm. But the idea of where I was before, and this is just a learning that I've, I've got, got out of this, is when I could read the play and I could already figure out what they were going to say, I was like, okay, let, how do we quicken this up? I actually wasn't giving space to the person. I wasn't allowing them to play in their mind what they were cal- calibrating as they were speaking, right? Because we often, and you lose the power of thought, you lose the power of iteration. Um, so, h- holding the space is what you said before of giving the person the opportunity to speak is so powerful. Because there's some things, and I cut people off every now and again in the podcast too, because I really just want to talk about that point because I like it. Yeah. But, yeah, there is a real power in letting someone hold, uh, holding the space like you are doing now. <laughs> Keep going. I've got many, I've got many questions. <laughs> Sorry, Daniel.
0: I just, I, I think that's very powerful. Mm. Even just to just pause there for a moment, like that, that is an enormous, I think, piece that is missing from the way we've designed our human systems. Mm. Workplaces, schools, higher education, like lots of the different settings. How might we is the question. Right, mm. Together, it's a design question. Yeah, correct. How might we create more space for deep listening and actually get down to the true potential, the true possibilities that exist for us as a team doing whatever the work is in service of this mission? Mm. And that's a real powerful piece. It's also just triggered a thing for me that I often think about, which is we often focus on the output, mm. right? which is teaching. Mm. And so as an educationalist now and as someone that's spent most of my life in education, um, I'm really curious about why we focus on the output and really what we're what we've been learning what great educators have have always done and great schools and i think great leaders have also always done is to focus on the outcome and that's to say to realize it's probably just an ego trip to think i can teach you something Mm. let me let me tell you how it's going to be right and some of those very old school leadership great man models of leadership right Mm. um they go way back to kind of napoleon and the generals and that kind of stuff it's like let me give you some advice. No, no, that doesn't work. It <laughs> doesn't work. Because I can't teach you anything. You can only learn. Mm. And yeah, I can be directive and I can be explicit and I can use a whole suite of different communications tools or learning sciences to make that happen. But ultimately, do the new like <laughs> the synapses in your brain change because of our conversation. And so that's a different way of since rather than thinking of teaching and learning. It's it's learning mm. via teaching. Mm. Right. And that's Oh, it's learning via experience, right? And John Dewey said, you know, we don't learn from experience. We learn from reflection on experience. Mm. And that's really powerful too. So how do you do reflection? You've got to hold space. Ask some questions. How did, how did everyone feel about that? What, what's present for us? What resonates? And particularly as we think about the increasing kind of automation of the workforce, like that's our deep humanity on show when we're doing that kind of work. That stuff can't be, not yet, pushed to open AI to do or push to, you know, Boston Dynamics Robotics to kind of just yeah. get going because it's not routine. Mm. It's actually emergent. It's an emergent phenomenon and I think that's the true beauty of working in a human system that elevates the humanness that we all have, that multidimensionality uh, because then we feel pretty aligned. We're creating something brand new. We're being novel, truly novel uh, in the way that we're thinking about. Our next steps and our learning as an organization. So, the last point I'll make on this, because I think it's so powerful, is that if any organization doesn't consider themselves a learning organization, they're already a few decades behind. Mm. No, it's actually the human beings in the system that we've created, a company structure, whatever the structure, right? It's almost, in some ways, it's almost irrelevant. It's like, what's the capacity for them to evolve and grow? How much do we invest in our leaders in particular? but all human beings in terms of their own experience, both in terms of their technical outer skills and also their inner social and emotional skills. And you've got to, you've got to do those two things simultaneously. Mm. Otherwise, you get highly technical people that actually have no, can't inter- inter- interact yeah. properly. <laughs> this is why we introduced, by the way, an interview for, for medicine a few decades ago because we had all these phenomenal technical people but they had no bedside manner. Yeah. And so it's this idea actually we want to try to be a balanced, more balanced, more human in the way that we show up at work. ...at school, in life.
1: I love it. I love it. Um, you talked about... in. ...then you just talked about learning... ...and let me get my words right. Mm. Learning and learning through the art of teaching. Mm-hmm. Learning through the art of listening. Someone can't be taught, they can only be... ...so you can't teach someone something they can only learn... Then what I'm hearing from that comment, and you've obviously done a lot of study and research in this space. You know, you're a thought leader in this space. That tells me that the education system's wrong. <laughs> Am I, is that that's kind of what I'm that's how I'm hearing it? Yeah. Well,
0: I would say the edu- here's the way I reflect on this. Mm. It's that the education system isn't broken; it functions as it was designed. Okay. That is no longer fit for purpose. Yeah, because it was designed to dehumanize people, to standardize us, to be re- Yeah, to be replaceable parts mm. within a particular business model, to be a, literally on a factory line. Yeah. Like, and you understand why that it was designed that way. That was literally the design challenge it's for the, these industrialists it was that the creating era these that mass, we were living in. Right? these mass education systems. Yeah. And so now, particularly with automation, particularly when you look at any of the predictions from PWC, from mm. you know, the Future Humanity Institute around the shifting workforce clearly it's not fit for purpose. Yeah. And so how might we create a future fit education system? That really is at the core of most of my work. It's yeah, how do we rehumanize it? How do you build those social and the emotional capabilities from birth alongside the academics critically? And even add in the physical and the spiritual. And then what you have, you have a multidimensional, whole person centered education model, which is what great education has always been. But again, what's success? Well, if it becomes sing- a single number after 13 years of schooling, which it is here, which by the way is a national ranking against every other year twelve, you know, which, and we're only one, one of the few countries in the world to do it that way. Right? That that creates a narrowing of the model. Yong Zhao, who's an educational innovator and author, he calls it the sausage maker model of <laughs> education. So like put all this diversity in an annual, like, we'll just get a sausage. I mean, yeah. he's provocative, right? And so yeah. the question is it's easy to say education's broken and blah blah blah, but every single day, I mean. There's a million teachers in this you know, country in different kind of contexts working really hard to inspire young people and adult learners with the skills, the knowledge and the mindset, maybe even the kind of self-concept, how do they feel about who are they, mm. They that self-knowledge and understanding so that they can go and lead a really productive life, contribute to the economy, contribute to their community and thrive. And so I, I'm cautious with this whole education is broken or, you know, stronger language which many people yeah. use it's not fit for purpose it's not. but we've got people working really hard doing their best gosh wouldn't it be nice if we could liberate them a mm-hmm. bit more to do that work more powerfully um and that's partially that we need to elevate the status of what it means to be an educator because it's the profession that creates all other professions we've all i would say been influenced by inspired by an amazing teacher in our lives and we've all seen the teachers that are super overworked and slightly jaded and are projecting their own fatigue and anxiety onto others and so we need to shift the system so it's more human yeah. for everybody and if we do that i think then we're entering kind of the post industrial age and The post-industrial age. we are at, in an education renaissance yeah no doubt about that it's exciting incredibly exciting and goodness me there's a lot of work to do oh so we'll do it I, together then.
1: i love what you said about there's been a, there's always a teacher everyone that's come on this podcast i think we've had David Fogarty on recently uh, who's the founder of UDI which Mm. is a you know now 400 million dollar yeah you know international business amazing he um he was talking about some of the it's one of the teachers that you know um sparked interest in him Mm. and actually took a, a liking to him I'll never forget I had one teacher not that it had a massive impact on me but it had an impact on what I love and the way I think about things and I walked into it I was a bit of a larrikin I was a bit of a what? Uh, yeah. No. Well, I think I was. <laughs>
0: My, it doesn't surprise yeah, me at all. Most Wait, other people, <laughs> most other people really thought
1: I was just a dickhead. But yeah, um, <laughs> the, I walked into. I remember I walked into class. It was the first year. It was year ten. Yeah. And 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 he's probably listening. I'm connecting with him on LinkedIn. He may be listening. He. he um, <laughs> His name is Rick Summeriva, and he, I walked in and then, I don't know why I did it but I just remember I, go, I walked in and I went, Miss Samariva, Mr. Rick Samariva, like I started singing a song uh-huh, uh-huh. and he goes, excuse me, your name? I said, oh, my name's is Daniel And He goes, Mr. Franco, sit up the front, right, until I say you can move. Uh-huh. I stayed there for the whole year. <laughs> 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 but he, he was my so, year 10 science teacher yeah. and from that I was a C student, like, mm-hmm. you know, talking about graves. I was a C student Became an A student and have had a love for science. After that, that I just, I just absolutely, I consume scientific. I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed, mm. but I didn't get into the art of into the world of science. But so that's interesting. I wanted to talk about because you talked about this sausage factory and on the TER number that we have as a grading system. Yeah, tar, yeah. I um, eight was ETR when I and Mate, what, it's showing our age. Yeah, yeah. What did you? What number? What was your score?
0: Ninety-two point eight.
1: Yeah, so you were smart. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: so well, this is how I reflect on it, right? I I could play a game that actually meant I could maximize that score, yeah, into the top whatever eight percent. But as Howard Gardner told us, like decades ago, yeah. multiple intelligences, yeah, like the fact that we see academics as smart is partially the issue. Yeah, correct. It's and this I'll, idea of like,
1: well, this is divergence, neurodivergence. Well, this is novelty. my point. Oh, I got sixty something. I think sixty nine. I think I got as my TR. Right. I've been embarrassed. To Say that my whole life because mm. it puts me in. I didn't even get into the uni course that I wanted to, so I didn't even get, go to you. I thought, Yeah, yeah, that that course is only like a human movement course or something like that. That course is only 70. I'll be right, like that's <laughs> easy to get. I got 69 missed out, I only put one course down, mm. so I, I never went to uni and then I got into business. Right, wow. so, you know, thankfully it's led me in the right direction, and seems I, to have, yeah. mate. Right? Yeah, um, but I think the learning aspect, one thing that I uh, always has it a skill set was being able to communicate, being yeah. able to hold a conversation. I had confidence in my own ability to, to, to talk to someone and that put me in sales and that kind of, I then sort of grew in, in, into that world.
0: So this is wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, mm. Daniel, first of all, um, because we should have more of those conversations. Mm. You know, we, we all feel a bit, oh, we got to keep up appearances or whatever, you know, but there's that wonderful cartoon. I'm sure many of your listeners, um, listening now have seen it's this idea it's a tree and you've got in front of the tree uh an elephant uh, a giraffe a lion um a turtle and a monkey and you say all right everybody let's see who's successful climb the tree yeah and of course like so what we do is we lose the incredible diversity mm. of skill of possibility of passion yeah. we kind of prune it away from our young people and that's because of the legacy system that says this is what success is. Yeah. Success is an ATAR, which by the way, only one in four people in Australia use an ATAR to go to university. Oh,
1: really,
0: One in four. And uh, that's of the people that go to university. Yeah. So, so think about that. Like we have a single metric that's actually corrupting the entire system from the senior secondary downwards. Mm. And so the future of learning in my book is something akin to lifelong kindergarten, which mm. is also a very good book by the way.
1: Okay. Um, lifelong kindergarten.
0: Lifelong kindergarten. It's the idea of cultivating the capabilities across the lifespan. And yeah, don't get me wrong. This is not we sit in a circle and just like play in the sandpit. This is rigorous work. This is rigorous. It's designed. There's stretch. There's challenge. But as soon as we start to standardize, and particularly do exams, right, except when's the last time you did an exam running a, a successful company?
1: Uh, n- never. Like a closed yeah. book exam. Yeah. So, so <laughs> here's the thing right? <laughs> you think
0: about it's what you mate what we call the amount of nerves
1: that you get from it
0: mate so what we call the closest
1: thing would be probably a job interview
0: yes sure sure well you have you have yeah so you can't access additional resources in that particular point of time that's fair um but of course so for so really we're having in dialogue for an assessment in our systems what we call collaboration in the business world we call speaking out of turn disruption Mm. in schools what what we call um sharing resources we call cheating Mm. it's cool yeah right isn't that interesting it's just interesting for us to note that because i really see if we're having this conversation in 10 years time we are having a different conversation about what's actually going on in our learning systems and we're probably talking less and less about schools in my view and more and more about learning ecosystems Mm. so this whole idea and i'm attached to some of this fantastic work happening out of the u.s called the learning economy foundation and the whole idea there is how do you how do you create sovereignty mobility and equity so eventually, I think what we're going to have is a verifiable credential wallet. Mm. We thought it was going to be on blockchain; probably doesn't need to be, right? But the whole idea is like then you have all of your capabilities with you. You own your own data, and that means all the micro credentials, your learner profile, which by the way, South Australia is leading the nation in that work mm-hmm. through the SafeSport. Um, you know, that's the idea of actually taking the ATAR and putting it alongside a more holistic picture of who you are, what you can do, and what you know right those three aspects right it's a it's a more human picture and i guess like if you haven't picked up the trend like i'm a bit obsessed and yeah. obsessed by some science yeah. Yeah. i'm obsessed by the idea of humanizing our social systems yeah. how do you do that because that's what a great culture is you step in and you feel seen heard and valued and you're more able to do extraordinary work to your best capacity every single day and that's mm. that's what the work is right yeah that's what we want a school to be it's what we want a high performing company to be is one that's deeply human not one that's kind of, you know, everyone is scrambling or trying to, you know, maintain a status piece. It's just a waste of time, you know.
1: So What does a, yeah. a deeply human culture look like?
0: Well, so I, I literally feel like, like, so here's a reflection for me. Like we are emotional beings that think. We're not thinking beings that feel. Mm. I don't know where that quote's from, but I, I'm sure it's a quote somewhere. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Right. And so this idea is what's the um, affective space? And this is what we know from Google's you know, work on psychological safety, for example. They, what's the most high-performing teams in that research? They found the number one predictor was if the team feels safe to fail, to say something without fear of being kind of reprimanded. Yeah. So that idea, deeply human is where you're, you're seen as an emotional, social, and cognitive being. And let's add physical. You can move around you know, as opposed to having a body to move your brain around. Like actually – embodiment yeah. is another big yeah, piece you're right? not a vessel no you're not no it's not just <coughs> about knowledge again because this is as my colleague and friend gene clinton dr gene clinton would say you know we've got this tyranny of cognitive obsession where it's like you're smart you're not smart you have knowledge you don't have knowledge like that is such a simplistic mm. way to look at the world like we are we're venn diagrams here's here's the thing i say all the bloody time Daniel. we have venn diagrams not spreadsheets yeah but Venn diagrams, not spreadsheet. So a fully human culture is one that realizes our emotional tone. It, it cultivates social connectedness. And, of course, it stretches us intellectually and cognitively. It's not about this either or. Are we doing well-being now? Are we doing learning now? That is a non-starter to me. Mm. These things are completely entwined, particularly if we think about the purpose of, I was going to say, learning. I might just say life. Mm. It's the purpose of life to thrive, yeah, correct. to contribute something. To flourish. Absolutely. Like that really is the purpose. And until we can put that at the center of both our learning systems and our economic systems, we're going to continue to, I think, walk a pretty fine line with ex- existential collapse mm. um, as we're seeing with all the overshoot work um, that unfortunately is getting kind of worse and worse, you know, from floods to fire to famine. I mean, yeah, it's, it's – it's kind of scary time scary, in many yeah. respects.
1: Yeah, I want to just touch on the, the the Excel spreadsheet versus the Venn diagram. I think one, um and I, and I speak and I speak purely from self here, sure. right? And I actually, want to learn so I can improve. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before about the looking at the ATAR score, and I said, "Oh, wow, you're smart, right?" Like, I, and then you said, "That's a simple way of thinking," and which has got my brain ticking now. I'm not saying that I, I'm i not putting words in your mouth that you think I'm a simple person but we'll take that on board and talk that about after. <laughs> there, <I'll> <laughs> <mean>. <laughs> do, do the inner work about that. Man. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I think the, the point I'm, I'm I'm really interested in is, is the Excel spreadsheet to the Venn diagram because mm. I associate myself as a black and white person. I don't play in grey very well. And I always have these conversations, conversations over my business partner, my business coach, mentors, whoever it might be. I'm always saying, well, how do I be a better father and then manage a very successful, you know, high earning, revenue, whatever it might be, humanized culture business? How do I do do that? Um, I can't be one or the other. Like I have to put time and effort. I have to sacrifice, you know, you hear all the hustle stories. if you're putting time and effort into business, then – You know, you talked about the billionaire that's unhappy for marriages, all this sort of stuff. And then I think one time someone pointed out to me, they said, Daniel, Roger Federer is all I'm going to say. I'm like, talk to me about that. And they said, Roger Federer has achieved all that you can achieve as one of the best tennis players in the world and took his family everywhere with him. If someone at that elite level can do it, then you can too. just find a way in which you can do it. And so I want to ask the point and the question of how do we move away from the Excel spreadsheet to the Venn diagram? You think the engineers have this sort of linear way of thinking. Um, There's so many different Mm – yeah, it's one that I'm really struggling and trying to grapple with because my brain automatically goes to the black or white. How do I, how do I position myself to think in the Venn diagram?
0: Wonderful um, reflection. I think it's from Bertrand Russell. And he said, the definition of intelligence is being able to hold two conflicting views in mind without accepting either one. Oh, yeah. And so this idea of us having to go black or having to go white in some ways limits us because like to think of life as certain in any way is kind of a self-delusion. Mm. Right? Like, we've got no idea what's going to happen no, agreed. tomorrow. Agreed. We don't know what's going to happen in the next five
1: yeah. minutes.
0: <laughs> so I feel like it's just being – it's how do we navigate ambiguity? And this is what I've learned through my work at the D school at Stanford is – they do a lot of work on building the capability to navigate ambiguity. It's like, okay, we don't know. So, how, how do we do that? Well, we can, we can put this forward as a thesis or a strategy, and then we kind of have to let go and be quite adaptable, right? And it's the whole, as you would know, the whole rise of AQ and adaptability quotient or intentional adaptability quotient, yeah. all that kind of way. Yeah. Agility, et cetera, et cetera, right? Agile sprints, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <It's> all, <laughs> so much to <laughs> say. But so I, I really feel like, like, so you, if you think about your life, think about all the intersections of roles that you have or any leader of an organization, you know, you've got all these different circles and the point is they all overlap and you're in the middle of them. And so at certain times one circle might be larger and the other might be slightly smaller mm. because you're just having to hustle this week because you've got a massive thing you've got to close, right? Mm. Uh, and so you're kind of slightly not able to show up as with as much presence as you would as a father. And then and the other way, you're like, okay, great. I'm actually going to really prioritize this because I know th- my this one of my girls is going through a challenge, you know, whatever. Yeah. So the point is like, we are always these things. We are multiple things. There's this great like, you know, it's I am legion. I contain multitudes, right? And that's what Whitman, I think. And it's this idea that yeah, we're legion. We're literally multiple selves. So it's I am dot dot dot, and then every single role that you play in life. Mm. And we need the spreadsheets. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-spreadsheet. No. Like, you know. But the spreadsheets come underneath the Venn diagram. Mm. They're the operational model. Do you know, you still need yeah. to have a strategy. But strategy for me is an amusing hypothesis. As Dr. Jason Fox would say, it's an amusing hypothesis. Cool. Well, we think this is the way we're going to go. We're going to take intentional action in this direction. But yeah, we didn't see the pandemic coming or we didn't see this cataclysm coming. or We didn't see this big job being pulled up. Or well, this rug get pulled out. Or oh, this pandemic. rug get pulled yeah. out. And yeah. mate, to come back to... Like, Roger Federer, first of all, what a legend. Yeah. You know, this guy just seems so humble. And it's just almost impossible to not like him. You mm. know, even if you're a big Nadal fan, you know, or
1: Djokovic you, or something. Right? Will you respect.
0: You respect you can, these So, yes, the question is like, let's have a look at that. And I'm, I want to share some work here from David Epstein. He wrote a great book called Range, which I would commend to anyone listening. Yeah. It's fantastic. David it's Eps- learning. David Epstein. Or range. Okay. Yeah, Range. And it's about, it's kind of, subtitle is... Why generalists thrive in a hyper-specialized world. Mm -hmm. And I would self-identify as an aspiring deep generalist and keep the word aspiring wherever you can. Mm. (laughs) Because as soon as you're like, I'm now, I've made it. Yeah. The kind of expert paradox triggers. And then you're like, I don't need to do as much learning because I'm being paid for my knowledge. You start dying. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the Mm. limbs start getting clipped up again. But he starts that book, chapter one, and it's literally Roger and Tiger. And he talks about Roger Federer And his development into becoming the world's greatest tennis player, now arguable you know. um, Serena Williams might actually hold that title. And, you know, Tiger Woods, right. And so Roger grew up with range. He actually played multiple sports for most of his childhood. Mm -hmm. And he actually could have gone either way. I can't remember the other sport that he was world class in, but he chose tennis like at 20 Mm.
1: really full time, you know.
0: Tiger Woods, taught by his father in I'd say a pretty rigorous way mm-hmm. um, maybe intense way, like you 're going to be a golf superstar, yeah. specialized from the beginning, and I think we can just look at what like who these two people have become yeah. as human beings, as husbands, right, without passing too much judgment, but like if you look at those two, you'd say one of them clearly is a better role model mm. why, and I think david's hypothesis without you know putting words in his mouth is that. Because one has range, a range of experiences. They are more of a Venn diagram. Yeah. They have more perspectives to take to come full circle. <laughs> more circles. More, you've traveled, more, you speak more language, you understand this. Yeah. So it's not just, you're not just this one thing. And that means if you take that thing away, who are you? You've got nothing left. Mm. It's one of the big challenges that we're finding, I think, in the modern world. This is the call for constant reinvention, constant mm. evolution, constant learning, right, mm. as that underpinning superpower. So that Roger, I love that you brought up Roger Federer, Yeah, right? Because I feel like that, like his journey, it's actually something we can pay attention to in the way that we design our learning systems, maybe even the way we design our organizations. Rather than taking just the technical skill that's important for that person's role, give them something radically different to learn. Go to an art class if you can't draw. Mm. Don't, like, and literally, I think this is the way that we become better-rounded people. And to close out this mini rant, which I feel is like most of the answers. It's, um, you know, if you want to be interesting, be interested. Yeah. The most interesting people are the ones that ask the most questions yeah. that actually have kind of had the most curiosity across their lifespan. Yeah. And so tragically I think what we do is that the legacy schooling systems that we've all been through, they actually prune away part of our curiosity. We stop asking questions because we, we kind of learn the hidden grammar which is you have to know the right answer. And so we go to convergent thinking instead of divergent thinking. Mm. We have to relearn that through very expensive executive programs. at Stanford. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. it's kind of to get back out into that creative yeah. space. So, yeah, that whole piece. But I'm really into this how do you build out the Venn diagram in all of us and how do we think multidimensionally? If we were to just pass, you know, do a little self-assessment, how are you doing cognitively? How are you doing socially? How are you doing emotionally? How are you doing spiritually? And how are you doing physically? All those things matter if we're talking performance in anything beyond the most basic cognitive task yeah. which increasingly is what work will be for all of us
1: <laughs> this was like, but, the know, like no i love it i think the i want to touch <laughs> on a few things in there which i really want to expand on and you mentioned the comment i mean you you said the the draft the elephant and you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's an truth, it's yeah. an Albert Einstein quote too. You know, the ability the, why are we judging a fish's ability to climb a tree, uh-huh. sort of thing. Yes, yeah, it's a particular thing. Yeah. When you when you apply that to learning of sc- in school, and then you talk about the Venn diagrams, and we use the Roger Federer and Tiger Woods example. Uh, Andre Agassi might be another one <laughs> if you think about you know what, how he was brought up. He, that book's an amazing book, by the way. I right? haven't read it yet. No, I've heard it, but. <clears throat> the the thought that's going through my mind now and the question that I want to ask is you talked about art going and doing an art school if you're not if you're not such a good drawer and and, and building um, building the opportunity to learn things that you're not so strong in within organizations. Let's bring this back to a business mm-hmm. slash schooling perspective. If if you're sending someone off to do an art course. Do they need to be interested in drawing? Do they need to have a passion about the drawing? Or do we just do it so we can get more Venn like more circles on our Venn diagram? <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. l- More circles uh, equals better. That's no. what I'm saying. Well, because you like if we no, add to right. that Venn diagram and we yeah. and we build the the learnings that we go through, it creates us and you never know, right? You might go and do that art course and just end up loving art like I did with the science thing. So that that's mm-hmm. kind of my point is yeah. It is you often hear and it's something that you see on TikTok, Twitter, all the social medias. Follow your passion. Follow your passion. Steve Jobs comes out and he goes, "If you don't love what you do, you can't connect the dot." All this sort of stuff. Mm. Is it passion that we need to cultivate mm. in the schooling system or in the business world, or is it adding, like, literally adding more layers mm. to who you are as a human? Great question, Daniel. That's really.
0: That's really interesting. A couple of things come up for me. One is um, let's start with schools and then go to business. Yep. So in education systems, some of this research will show us that one in three young people change – well, they don't change. They choose their subjects in senior secondary away from things that make them feel truly alive, things they love to do for things they think will give them a better score.
1: Yeah.
0: And that to me is system failure. Because that's a that's a dehuman those choices are being made based on this hidden grammar around what success is and who you want to be. And so that's the first thing I would say. It's like – I like the guy model, which I don't know if you've seen oh, before. Uh,
1: I think I've got the book on here.
0: I bet <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah, well, it's wonderful. And I remember seeing that like years and years ago before the books came out. I just yeah. saw someone put it up on Twitter. I was like, oh, that is – that's brilliant. Yeah. And course, oh, so,
1: it's, sorry, when we talk about the book, it, they, it's a philosophy, isn't it? It's, it's a not, philosophy, it's but it's there's not, a book that people have codified yeah, it. Yeah, correct. Um,
0: and just so that people understand what ikigai is, it's Japanese for purpose or la raison d'etre in French, you know, what's our reason for being? And it's, you know, what, what are you good at? What can you get paid to do? And that's your profession. You know, it's like, what are you good at? What do you love? That's your passion. And then it's like, what can you get paid to do? And what does the world need? That might be a vocation. And then uh, what do you love to do? And what does the world need? And that's your mission. And so in the center of that, is ikigai. It's your purpose. And so, then we delve into the conversation around lifestyle design or career design, right? Particularly important for young people because the hyper-engaged, not disengaged, hyper-engaged zillennials and gen alphas that'll come into the workforce in the business sense, you know, they have a higher expectation for doing interesting work. Oh. They don't want to kind of plot along for 16 years and then get it. from. It's not not happening. And so it's this career web, the idea, everyone is a personal brand, all of that's going on. Um, And then I think your question too, how do we be, (laughs) is it just about adding an extra circle (laughs) at at a business? That's from a layer perspective. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I get get that. (laughs) So do you have to love art to go to an art club? Or does it have to be a passion? Absolutely not. Because it took me a long time to work this out, right? For a long time, I was very much in the, I would say, unconsciously privileged position of saying it's about doing what you love. Do what you love, young people. Go that way. And yeah, it's that, but that is such a privileged thing to say. Yeah, if, if I I'm go more... and
1: play PlayStation all day long, or, you know. Well, yeah. that's, well,
0: that's true too. But also, if you're coming from poverty, or if I think about some of the young people with whom I've worked or I've, I've been in like a learning teaching relationship with, um, I say, hey, just do what you love. And they're coming from a, a place where there's intergenerational unemployment. And they're like, well... I might love to do do this thing. Yeah. And you're like, well, they don't have the social capital or the financial capital. Yeah. I don't know. I'd, they'd love to go to Harvard. Okay, great. So, you know, I think we've got to be careful when we took that take the kind of street can jobs I, thing. Can
1: I jump in there for one thing? For I'm yeah. reading the book um, Psychology of Money at the moment. Oh, okay. I, I haven't I mean, heard of it. It's, yeah. it's, a new, it's a new one out there. It's quite interesting. Uh, it gives you, gives you a bit more of perspective of money and where it came from and and how everyone perceives it, right? Yeah. And so when you talk about it comes from a position of – of, of um, what did you say? Position of privilege. Uh, privilege, yeah. sorry, I lost the word there for a sec. Uh, position of privilege. Um, there was an example within this book in the first couple of chapters where uh, they were talking about Nike and the sweatshops, mm. right? And so how in America there was this big uproar of – you know, sweatshops and people getting paid $2 an hour and that's slave labour and all the above. And, 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 and rightly so, right, from that position of privilege. That's mm-hmm. not what, the way we want to treat. Mm-hmm. And then what actually shook everyone to the core was when it was a young Taiwanese boy come out and said, well, actually that sweatshop for my auntie was the best thing that ever happened to her. Because before that, she was a prostitute. Mm. That sweatshop took her away from, being, from having to sell her body for a living wow. to being able to respect herself in a role. Mm. So now you're taking away the, our opportunity to elevate ourselves out of our poverty-stricken lives. Mm. And not, I'm not condoning or, or sorry, I'm not enforcing and, and promoting sweatshops. It's about perspective, isn't it? Yeah. And when you say things come from privilege, we really need to consider that whenever we think about. It. And it, yeah, absolutely. So keep carry on, if I cut you off. No, so. that's really. I mean,
0: that's great. I <laughs> just want to reflect on what you've just said. Cause I think it's really profound. Mm. I think what what we need to be conscious of is that this is nuance. This mm. is complex. Yeah. It's not. It's not black and white. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, not black. it's not. It's It's hard because. It's not one or the other. This is the thing. It's like there's a post dual view to this, so it's not just. It's not do what you love. Yeah. So we'll say that, and this is why Ikigai is so powerful because the whole idea that it's a Venn. Guess what? It's a Venn diagram. Mm. You know, I love Venn diagrams. I'm yeah. a nerd for the Venn diagram. Yeah. Um, I've seen
1: a few of your uh, YouTube. Oh mate, videos. it's all Venn diagrams. Yeah, <laughs> it's all just <laughs> colourful circles. That's all I do. It's all I do. All I do. I'm to Do you colour in the lines or do you go out the lines? I oh, know, no, no, out, no, out the lines. But, you know, really, you know, this could be a bit emergent and
0: stuff. But um, this idea, yeah, it's like. How do you actually design your life forward? Mm. And so, yes, do what you love. Yes, try to find your passion and go for it. Absolutely. But it's bad advice to young people to say, find your passion and go for it. It's better advice to say, actually, what would be a meaningful life for you? What might be your purpose is a better question. The same reason that we shouldn't say happiness. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah, the purpose of life is to be happy. I disagree. It's not. The purpose of life is to create meaning, Mm. right? Create meaning. In community with others, do good work, build new businesses, create new products and services. Do something, do something really interesting something and kind like of dangerous, value. you know? Like, yeah, mm. add value. Because then, and then guess what? If you do that well, happiness will ensue. Mm. You can't pursue happiness, it can only be a byproduct of a life we'll live. That's my view. And, you know, m- more smart philosophical people like Bertrand Russell say the same thing you can't pursue success. You cannot pursue success because you never arrive. Mm. You get your first hundred million, great. But now I'm like hanging with billionaires, so now I'm poor. Mm. And then, you know, and we know it's the psychology of money. You'll see this in the book, of course, right? It's like, you know, it, you, we relativize so quickly. People that are super wealthy but hang around with wealthier friends feel poor, feel mm. less happy mm. than someone that objectively has got far less financial resources but actually feels like they're in it. Yeah. So there's all these kinds of crazy things that go there on in this is. space. But So this idea of it's, yes, find, it's like create your purpose. Don't even find your purpose. It's not out there to be found. It's, t- it's through experimentation that perhaps we kind of unfold all these different parts of who we are. Yep. What can we do? What do we love to do? And then, you know, what do we need to know? And the last thing I'd say is this: like do what you love is one perspective. The other is love what you do. Mm. And so one thing that has always stuck with me is if you've got two people and they're chiseling stone, right, and you go past one person and say, hey, what are you, what are you doing? And they say, can't you see I'm chiseling some stone? You're like, oh, okay. Walk past and the second person say, what are you doing? And say, well, I'm building a cathedral.
1: Yeah.
0: And so that's called cathedral thinking. Mm. And that is powerful because what you've realized is that you, you're loving what you do. You've, you realize that you're in service of something greater than yourself. That's the spiritual question. It's transcendent. It's the idea I'm, I'm part of something bigger than me. The other study that I love comes out of hospitals and work in, in the health sector where it was the same question asked of cleaners. And some cleaners would say, I'm a cleaner at a hospital. And another group would say, I help people heal. I help yeah. people on the journey. And that second group would do things like change the pictures on the walls in the mm. ICU so that when this person woke up, there was a new picture for them. Mm. Put fresh flowers and cleaning. Yeah. But their orientation to, towards what they it's did correct. came from a place of love. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, so when we talk about human-centered mm. organizations and the business world that we want to create, I mean, that's, I think, what we're, we're trying to create here is this idea of, yes, you want to have a skill set, you know, you don't want to be, you want to have attunement, I think, Daniel. yeah, You don't want to be like a terrible musician trying to go and become a professional yeah. musician. Yeah. You know what I mean? yeah. like, I'm never going to be an NBA basketball player because yeah. I'm 5'9". Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, but you might. No. Because, no, So, but that. So there's all of these kinds of things in this nuanced conversation, but really it's what's a life well lived is the big question. And especially when we think about in a business sense, yeah, from time to time, we should be a bit more radical when we think about our own growth and development as a learning organization. Mm -hmm. What don't we know? What blind spots can we try to now find? And yeah, sometimes failing publicly is the best thing for you, especially if you're a C-suite, right? Because you're probably used to being really capable. Mm. So what scares the living daylights out of you? Have you tried that recently? Mm. And this is why I love language learning as adults, right? Because speaking another language means you have to, bail in public time and yeah. time in really embarrassing ways. Yeah. And mate, I've shared a few stories on the TED Talk, but mate, I got some real shockers, yeah. you know, I was like, oh, okay. That was, that was the word. Were I, you at the pregnant story? Was that the... That's the Spanish yeah, one I've done the, before. Embarazado yeah. it's a false cognate. So it's yeah. a false friend. And yeah, I thought... Um, I thought. Um, I think it's probably the same in Brazilian. It's like so. You know, you go and you're just trying to learn Spanish and you say, "Oh, estoy muy embarazado." You know, you think means I'm really embarrassed, because it means I'm really pregnant. Yeah. And of course, you know, your man walking around, people go, like, "Oh, okay, that's nice." Kind of <laughs> but I've got all sorts of one from all different language contexts. You know, I thought the word for book and vagina in Pijinjata is very similar. I'll, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> That's been a real faux pas. I'm going to read. And you're just, oh, mate. And you're like, oh, I'm deep no. I'm like teaching a class and everyone's like, oh, like oh, eyes are wide open. Hold on. Yep. But no. so, so that that part yeah. for me, because I think what that does, when you are going and doing art and you feel that you're not an artist, mm. what that does is it shifts your orientation. You become more of a beginner. Mm. You have to get more comfortable with discomfort and great learning organizations in business are comfortable with discomfort, they can navigate ambiguity because they know that actually it's, it's progression. This is the old fixed growth mindset work of Carol mm. Dweck, right? It's been around for a long time and I think is now being iterated in some ways as mm. well.
1: So, Yeah, I'm a firm yeah. believer if, you, if you're moving into a leadership role or into c C-suite role or whatever it might be, you, you're choosing stress, right? You're choosing the, the option of living every day with ambiguity, Absolutely. living every day with the unknown. That, that becomes your new reality, yeah. right? So your new reality is being comfortable with the unknown. Yeah. Um, and you almost forget what it's like to <laughs> live any other way. Oh, I do want to touch back and we've talked about success um, and we've talked about schooling and, you know, we, we, we can define success. And I, I'm really interested in, um, in what is the responsibility of a school when it comes to sorry, – let's, sorry, let's cut back a bit. Let's look at the sure. Industrial Revolution and the way it was set up so mm-hmm. that we could go out and we could help grow uh, the world mm-hmm. in, in a sense from yeah. cars to all yeah. the above and that's the era that we went through. Yeah, Now we're in the world of what is essential services that are super important, say nursing, mm-hmm. um, what else is there, policing mm-hmm. – and we know for a fact that they're struggling with nurses with getting police on board and recruitment and that sort of space is it a school's responsibility to educate on the for success in roles that will help the environment and the sorry, and the community or is it a school's responsibility to Educate in a way that fosters entrepreneurship and other opportunities. And you talked about the brand, everyone becoming their own brand, mm-hmm. and or it, again, or does it fall into the Venn diagram of it's a school's responsibility to do all of the above?
0: Gee, sounds like there's a lot of responsibility on schools, mm. Daniel. That's how I to well, your question. Yeah,
1: mate. I, well, I think. <laughs> I think, well, it starts with education. I think this is… I agree. So, of course, I agree with
0: your premise. Um, But what I would say is it's a shared responsibility. Mm. This is not… So, I'd say it's accurate but incomplete. Mm. This is a community responsibility. This is a societal responsibility. Very true. Because if we put it all on schools again, which… And, you know, schools have got a lot on their plates, right? right. And the next thing is, okay, we're going to add this. We don't… We're not good at strategy when big education systems we add things we don't subtract mm. and there's the power that comes from doing less right and i think good strategy when i step into that strategic space it's actually about subtraction it's about what not to do as well as what to do for the intentional action and so yeah schools the role of a school i mean there's so many ways to frame this you know individual fulfillment for collective well-being that's a pretty good frame that you could mm. use you could also talk about um yeah, collective thriving and individual empowerment. You know, the idea here is that we need to move from standardization to personalization.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, and so that every young person is, a person is kind of on their own journey. Because if, you're, if you've got someone that really wants to be a nurse, yeah, they should be fully supported to discover that's the case. Um, but simultaneously, if you've got someone that kind of really doesn't like the they're kind of a bit of a, a different thinker, they want to be in enterprise or an, in entrepreneur, they've got a startup. Yeah, we should be supporting that too. So I don't think these things are either or propositions. Yeah. But the big shift here absolutely, mate, is from schools. And even the word school, I think we're not saying in 30 years, right? I think it's a different word. Mm. It's probably learning ecosystems, the learning village. It's the hub, it's the learning hub, right? That's from birth to, you know, grave, yeah. right? So, yeah, like young kids are there in the morning, et cetera, with the elders, you know, with 60, 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds because that's really good for cognition as well with them. Some really great studies looking at that when you put an early year setting in a nursing home. Amazing stuff, right? That's interesting system design, right? And so I think it's the shift from schools to learning ecosystem. And that means the role of parents, the role of industry, the role of community and nonprofit sector. And yes, the role of formal education. Because the future of learning is informal, non-formal and formal convergence. It's social, emotional and academic converged. Like this idea of literally, I don't want to say Venn diagram again, but I will, Venn diagram. It's like bringing back together these, these aspects and not saying that's a school's responsibility and that's a parent's responsibility. That kind of division as a spreadsheet is, is antithetical to what we know about how systems work. Mm. Systems are all about interrelatedness, profound interrelatedness, interconnectedness. And so, and I need to make an economic point here, right? So I'm not, I'm an amateur economist right Mm -hmm. i care really interestingly about the business model the way that's evolving and you know i've been around the the b Corp movement as well for example triple bottom line esg all this stuff that's really powerful and yet we're still in this space where stakeholder capitalism i think is kind of in its late stage we're going to have to see some kind of significant step into whatever the uh, you know mariana mazucato who's at ucl as a professor of economics she says we need a moonshot to changing capitalism because I don't think we're going to bring back communism. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. And socialism, you know, for, you know that's also that's kind of returning to the past. Really it's like what's the evolution of a more humane way of doing capital investing, right, and using capital in service of human flourishing? Social foundation whilst also paying attention to the ecological ceiling. And that's the donut economic model from Professor Kate Rayworth at Oxford University. And so those are the new models, right? Because, again, simultaneously, if you think we can have externalities in the business model, we're kidding ourselves. Mm. we are talking about? I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to do all this kind of stuff. Economic activity is good. I'm going to pollute over here, but we're going to actually not include that pollution on our, on our p and whatever, yeah. right, on our high stage. Yeah. And that's not how systems work as yeah. we are discovering with all of the t- crises that we're seeing around our world, mm. climate, social cohesion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the future of business is really interesting. It's purpose-oriented. And it's profit with purpose.
1: Mm.
0: It's not not like everything's nonprofit. No, no. I feel like there's this really powerful thing with enterprise when you when you're on the line. You know, and you and I are both in private industry. It's kind of like you gotta you gotta come up with something. You mm-hmm. gotta like, and I think that it's really powerful an innovation engine. And so, how do you use the power of business to kind of get to that? But it means having a more holistic worldview. I think Patagonia has taken some pretty amazing steps into that, making mm. Earth the shareholder of the company. Mm. I mean, that's probably a pretty Big step, um, <laughs> but uh, but you know what? I think we'll be judged by history to be absolutely right, and that maybe we've stayed in this kind of late stage space for too long. Like, if we're not thinking about the economic, the social, the governance parts of our business models, we're also not paying attention to what maybe the planet is saying, and increasingly, what the marketplace is saying. You know, purpose oriented businesses actually outperform non purpose oriented businesses, and if you look at the data financially, yep even though they're meant to be doing more complex stuff and actually, you know, paying their employees more. To your point around, you know, sweatshops. I mean, Amazon's a great example of this. I mean, how much money does Bezos actually need? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Same with Elon. Like, sure, I'm, I'm all full of a bit of philanthropic capitalism, but do we have to rely on a single individual to kind of save us from ourselves? Mm. I don't, I'm not so sure yeah. about that. I reckon we've got enough smart people working in businesses, working in the, the kind of third sector, and social sector, that we can kind of think pretty cleverly about how we partner in a public-private way to kind of transform stuff. So to come full circle, it's like, is it the responsibility of schools? Yes, and the responsibility of companies and the responsibility of community centres and the responsibility of families. And so that move from different institutions where we have a pretty – you know, these big gaps that you have to leap across in transition – you know, early years to primary, primary to secondary, secondary to tertiary, tertiary to workforce or yeah. vocational workforce. we just got to get rid of all those big jumps and just think of it as an ecosystem where, you know, you have a human being, a person that's multidimensional. They're learning really rigorously. You know, they're being challenged, but they're also being supported socially and emotionally to kind of become this holistic individual that can be a great employee, can be a great entrepreneur. Uh, can be a job taker and a job maker if we yeah. want to use some yeah. of the political <laughs> yeah. language, yeah. right? Uh, you know, and a job keeper and, you know, it's yeah. all about jobs. And I'm all like pro-job. Like, yeah. Don't get me wrong. But it's also like job is maybe the primary part of human flourishing. Mm. But a lot of people have jobs and we still, you know, have the, the greatest burden of disease in our world is mental health and increasingly depression and anxiety. And, you know, this is trillion – we're talking trillion dollar impacts. Mm. Here. And so – Yeah, what are we doing about that? So maybe we shouldn't just say job. We should say, yeah, like good good life keeper. Yeah. You know, life satisfaction. Yeah, so employment skills and also social skills and also social support. I mean, this might sound a bit utopian, but like this is the vision we have to have for the future. Yeah, correct. Because otherwise we're going to end up in a different place. Yeah. More social fragmentation, more international conflict, more emergency crisis settings when climate starts, you know, the planet starts. Starting to kick us off in some ways, right? And you know, some of us might want to go to Mars. Mm. And um, I'm a big space nerd, so I'm really excited in yeah. that space. And we can learn a lot about space from space work. About you know, Adelaide, we have the Australian Space Center. That's yeah. amazing. Um, but it's also like, what are we going to do for planet? Yeah. You know, and how do we play? You know, it's not just the technologies we need; it's the shift in systems. Yeah. I think as well.
1: I'm sorry to say this, but we have to. You're on a. A tight uh, oh, time frame. What is
0: t- what is time? We, we will endure. Uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> we, we have long after uh, we clock.
1: have to start thinking about wrapping up uh, at the moment. Um, so, I have about fifteen questions that I didn't ask. So maybe <laughs> we can maybe maybe <laughs> we can do a, a round two <laughs> in sure, the man. future. Um, so I'm going to wrap up the podcast now, right. and before we jump into some quick fire questions. I asked you on the phone a couple of weeks ago when we did chat or a week mm. or so ago when we had a chat. Yeah. I said, what would you – if you had to ask yourself one or two questions, what question would you ask yourself? And you you said to me, what advice would my 65-year-old self say to me now? Mm. Can you answer that question? <laughs> What advice would your 65-year-old self say to you now? I'm waiting for my 65-year-old self to answer <laughs> it.
0: But I feel like, um, look up Harry at 65 would say something like, remember the small things mm. and remember what truly matters, especially as the world gets faster. That would, I think that would mm. be, like it'd be pay more attention to where you actually are, uh, in a dopamine loop fed yeah. world right it's the age of distraction the extraction economy it's pretty hard to do that so yeah i think it's yeah trust yourself probably is always a good advice from an yeah. older self so like, yeah trust yourself you're doing okay mm. oh how's this one okay this is this is what it might be it's you have everything you already need mm. that really resonates like yeah. oh i right, agree and then from that place of fullness and completeness mm. do really interesting things meaningful things maybe I hope. <laughs> cool. All <of>
1: the above. <laughs> Trust yourself is the big one. Trust yourself; that's huge. Right, we're going to jump into some quick fire questions to wrap right. up.
0: What are you reading right now? Jeez, uh, Right now, I am reading about ten books. Yeah, I know. I am the same. Read. It's a yeah. tricky one. Um, I would say I am reading uh, "Becoming Supernatural" by Doctor okay. Joe Spencer. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, the parallel sayings, which is actually about looking at the words of Buddha. Jesus, Lao Tzu and Krishna and thinking like what underpins all religions? Mm. That's an interesting question yeah. as well. Um, and then I'm also reading uh, a lot of education books, okay. you know. Um, yeah.
1: Very good. stuff. If you, from a self-development point of view, could recommend a book to someone, yeah. what, would, what book would come to mind? Just one. Uh, There's so many. but uh, So so what's one that you've gifted the most?
0: Um, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl. It's my favorite
1: book of all time. Of course, mate.
0: On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. Mm -hmm. And the last one is actually um, Designing Your Life, which is by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, who are colleagues at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And it was a lifestyle design course that they used to give to Stanford students, still give to Stanford students. And that book... I swear, I've recommended about fifty people, and they've all bought it because it's back to our Iki guy conversation. It's how do you design your life for? How do you use design thinking for your life, mm-hmm. like around your career trajectory or around decisions you might be making? Odyssey planning is one of my favorite tools ever, and I use it all the time. Okay, it's just a really beautiful what was the way book again? designing your life. Bill Burnett, David.
1: We'll put him in the show notes. Okay. Do you listen to any other podcasts?
0: I I used to. At the moment,
1: I'm like. I'm
0: almost too much in a creation space because okay. I've just been consuming so much knowledge for so yeah. long as an educator. Itch- but I would say my favorite uh, Hidden Brain, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, great. Aubrey Marcus podcast, I really like. That's yeah. interesting, kind of cutting edge spirituality stuff. Um, I used to love TED Radio Hour as well. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. spent a lot of years listening to that too. Yeah. yeah.
1: Creating synergies now your favorite? Which yeah, is good. I do about. <laughs> uh, if this is the quality, I don't know, uh, man. If it's me. <laughs> nah, that's cool. What's one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn?
0: <sighs> Maybe that there's not one lesson. Mm. I don't know. It's mm. that actually, um, actually, do you know what it is? It's that life is really simple. <laughs> it's just be curious, be honest, and be kind. Yeah. That. That's it. That's, that's kind of that's what I'm learning.
1: Yeah, we overcomplicate things. So. Oh my god, so
0: much—the mind, the, the you know, story we tell compl- ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we make things complicated. Exactly, and that's the way. That's the most important story we ever hear. By the way, mm. it's the one that we are telling ourselves consistently. Mm. And if we can change that, I think it unlocks our true potential. Mm. Go beyond
1: it, even. So, you could invite three people for dinner. Who would they be? Oh. um,
0: well, yeah, if I, you know, when I answer that question, I think, well, who's the most influential person ever? And it's probably the spiritual master, like it'd be mm. Buddha, Lao Tzu and Jesus. That would mm. be kind of an interesting chat. Mm. You know? But I actually think it would be my Yaya, my grandma and my older self because mm. they're my elders that I call upon, really. Um, you know, the ancestors that have passed on. Uh, and also only need that, that old looker just to give me that, that simple answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That
0: would be an interesting conversation.
1: That's true. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. That's made me think about if that could actually come to reality. I'd go back and learn Italian and invite my grandparents back. Oh, man. I, even, I never even thought about it like that. That's amazing. Um, never too late, mate.
0: It's never too late. Brain plasticity. It's all yeah.
1: Well, it's definitely on the bucket list.
0: Andare, see. Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 what's what's some of the best advice you've ever been you've ever received?
0: Um. It's actually that. Um, Somebody said to me, a a dear friend uh, who's an amazing social entrepreneur in India has changed millions of lives actually. Um, He said, and I've already said this, but he said, um, imagine if you, why don't you just start with the assumption that you already have everything you'll ever need. Mm. And so that's that piece around abundance as opposed to scarcity. Mm. And if we can create an abundance mindset, in our leaders, in our business work, and through our schools, in our world. I think we can actually create a, a better future for our grandkids.
1: Mm.
0: So yeah, you have everything you already need. I
1: love that. Uh, 10,000 questions. I've got to stop myself <laughs> from asking. You can get go. <laughs> if you had access to a time machine, where would you go?
0: I would go to, I actually go to 2100. Yeah. And I'd, See what we've created what the and invented. Schooling system looks like, Absolutely, yeah. what the schooling system looks like. What does our business models look like? What technologies are at play? And I would bring back those technologies. And I think the most important one is the one that we are still missing today. Is it's not just converging tech; it's human tech. Mm. What's the? How do we develop and cultivate the type of capabilities, type of character, type of human beings that help us live in a more a peaceful, mm. compassionate way with? all life around us, not just each other, but also, you know, the ecologies that sustain us. Yeah. I think that I'm very curious. And I, as a futurist, I'm always interested in what the speculation of that could look like.
1: If, you ha- if your house was on fire, your family, your pets, everyone, they're all safe, you could run back in and grab one thing, what would it be?
0: It'd um, my guitar. Yeah? Yeah.
1: You play music as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just to add to the neural plasticity. Yeah, totally. Man. Been- well, there's a connection between <laughs> mathematical and music. Yeah, I do. And actually, um, when my grandma died, she gave us all a thousand dollars, the grandkids. Yeah. And I bought a guitar, a beautiful Taylor, um, three quarter, like yeah. guitar with that. And um, I'm more of a pianist than a guitarist, but it's a beautiful guitar. So.
1: she so play uh, piano as well? Well, piano is the
0: yeah. base instrument. You and, know? If you learn piano, and, you're and a, set. And a marathon you
1: know? runner and all the above.
0: Well, a couple of weeks out from that. So, yeah, yeah looking forward to trying
1: to, get a, to struggle over Is there anything really you don't do?
0: Draw, you mate. Don't I don't do <laughs> yeah. The drawing class freaks <laughs> <fix> me out. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, if you had one superhero power, what would it be?
0: Oh, um. it would be to help people see how powerful they truly can be mm. in a positive way.
1: Mm. You don't want the negative one. No, I <laughs> you know. No, it's like, <laughs> I'm <am> powerful. I'm <laughs> <laughs> destroy the world. Take over the world. I had to yeah. add that at the yeah. end of the like, oh, yeah, That's yeah, not going to fly. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I love this one your best dad joke. Oh, um, oh shit joke. Yeah, it's a terrible <laughs> joke. Oh, look,
0: I'm yet to become a dad, so I feel like I haven't entered this world fully <laughs> yet. But um, what kind of peas are a dad's favorite?
1: What kind of peas are a dad's favorite? Peas and quiet. <laughs> uh, yes, it's so true. <laughs> oh, you can speak yes. to that, mate. You can speak oh, to that. yes. Brilliant. Look, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'm a bit bummed we couldn't go for two or three hours with this one. We, it's, you know, we really could uh, have. We could have double-clicked um, on a few things. That's yeah. like we – I think yeah, we'll see if we can touch base and do a part two next year sometime. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for all that you're doing in this space. Um, I really believe you're – thought leadership and your passion around what you're doing, especially within the schooling system and, and setting up the future in a better way um, is, is like it's, it's world leading and, you know, no wonder why you're getting asked to go around the world and speak <coughs> and do this sort of stuff. It, you're really passionate about it and absolutely amazing. Your message is really strong and, you know, I'm going to continue watching from the sidelines as a fan. Um, so, you know, kudos to you. Um, thanks again for coming on. Daniel, um,
0: th- mate, thanks for a wonderful conversation. You've absolutely convinced me long form is the way to go. Yeah, brilliant. It's really, It's yeah. been a delight. Thank you.
1: Where can we find you? Where can we follow you? Uh, well,
0: I have to say I'm both lucky and cursed to have a unique combina- name mm-hmm. combination. So Luca Parry, yeah. Greek yeah. Welsh. Yeah. So it's L-O-U-K-A-P-A-R-R-Y. And if you put that into any search thing, you will You'll find a bunch you, yeah. of,
1: Check out his website.
0: Moderately interesting mm-hmm. things I'm working on. Yeah. So and the learningfuture.com is kind yeah. of the work we do with learning systems and a little bit in the innovation organization yeah. space too. Which
1: we didn't even really touch on today. So I'm Mate, sorry, sorry, but not, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that and what you're doing in that space as well. But the
0: most important the most interesting thing is actually who we are. Yeah. And that's kind of like I'm a big proponent for big talk, not small talk. Yeah. And yeah, I could tell you all the stuff, the cool projects we're working on, yeah. and the system change, and transformation agenda and stuff. And that's all really interesting. Mm. But I really just like. The way you've asked the questions as well, because it's been such a deep, it's been a deep self conversation, mm. and like this is the holding of space, the generative listening,
1: because
0: mm. then new questions emerge, right? I think you're yeah. a fantastic question like interviewer. I think that's really clear.
1: Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'll take uh, payment. <laughs> take pay, payment. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take payment. <laughs> Appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for uh, for coming and listening in. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast, all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask, though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate, and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care, guys. All the best.